Welcome to the Nutrigenomic Nation podcast with Brian Highfield, certified nutritionist, author, speaker, and founder of multiple successful companies in the health world. Brian is known for educating healthcare professionals and others on improving their health and their life through breakthroughs in nutrition, technology, and biochemistry. On the podcast, Brian interviews thought leaders in the world of nutrition and natural health. He and his guests share the secrets of a whole life natural approach to health and the life-altering results you can get by making easy changes to your diet and daily routine. All right, I want to welcome everybody to Nutrigenomic Nation, where we talk about nutritional-based healthcare technology and some emerging trends related to your genetic health. And I'm your host, Brian Highfield. I'm really excited about today's guest. We have a we have a rock star uh, guest today to talk to us uh, on a lot of different topics. We have Dr. Ryan McNally, and Dr. McNally is the medical director of Aspire Regenerative, which is a state-of-the-art medical facility delivering integrative and technologi- uh, te- technologically, easy for me to say, advanced medical care. Uh, he is a licensed naturopathic doctor and, a, and a, phys- a physician's assistant and is a renowned educator and speaker, and we're very, very lucky to have him on our program. Welcome, Dr. McNally. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And so I want our listeners to kind of get to know you a little bit. And, and can you describe for us what, what led you into the healthcare field? What's, what's your background? Yeah, uh, well, so I mean, I've I've always been a science person. So I, even as a as a kid, I was kind of you know enamored watching Doogie Howser on television, you know, in the, the whole medical field. So science, I feel like being a clinician, being a doctor, you know, so, you know, the whole scientific exploration has just always been part of my DNA. Um, and interestingly enough, I don't come from a line of healthcare providers or anything like that. Um, but you know, I think some of the things that shaped me um, are are some of my environmental exposures. So. You know, I grew up with a, with a family that had a big garden in their backyard. My grandfather grew um, tons of fruits and vegetables and so forth. So healthy eating was kind of, you know, partly pragmatic for them, but also just part of what we grew up with. Um, you know, I was always involved in athletics and sports. You know, I ran um, competitive, um, uh, I was a competitive high hurdler in, uh, at the University of Massachusetts. And so, you know, optimizing my, my health, my nutrition, um, you know, it allowed me to perform at a higher capacity at a very competitive level at, in college and so forth. So it has, you know, health has always, health promotion has always been kind of part of who I am. And, and all of these environmental pieces have kind of shaped me along the way. Awesome. Yeah, very, very interesting. That's, that's, uh, um, yeah, it's just really cool. And I'm really interested in the sports aspect. And maybe we can touch on that a little bit in, in our program. But for our listeners, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about what regenerative medicine is and how that's different from your typical treatment that you might receive from your from your, your primary healthcare provider? Yeah, absolutely. I think the easiest way to understand it is kind of comparing it to what people are used to. So people are used to kind of going into their their clinicians with medical problems. So I have a disease or I have a symptom and I'm looking for some help with that. Um, and so, you know, we largely do symptom management. Um, we also do disease, um, um, we do basically disease control um, as part of kind of your standard medical, uh, me- medical centers. Um, uh, they also do a lot of uh, risk mitigation. So they'll screen um, for health, is, you know, health conditions and so forth to try to do early prevention and early treatments. That's what people are used to in annual physicals and so forth. Um, regenerative medicine has a different look. Regenerative medicine is essentially saying, okay, if we are young and we have healthy cells and healthy tissues, 
and most young people are healthy, um, aside from, you know, congenital conditions and kind of, um, you know, uh, small populations and so forth. The cells and the tissues of young people are very, very healthy. They are, um, they are, they have, they are loaded with stem cells. And so these stem cells can heal tissue very quickly. That's why, you know, an eight-year-old that gets an injury as compared to a six-year-old gets an injury, the eight-year-old heals much, much more quickly, right? Um, somebody who's much older has a much harder time healing. They just have a regenerative, uh, a much better regenerative capacity. Matter of fact, some people will call, refer to kids as lizards because they, they can, you know, seemingly regrow their tails, so to speak. Not quite, but, but uh, the, the, it works for an analogy. Um, and so regenerative medicine tries to tap into that fundamental principle of the body's ability to heal itself. And so partly it's philosophical, but then how it interplays on the delivery of the clinical services and the medicine is very, very, very different. We can treat disease with re regenerative medicine, but we can also treat somebody as, okay, we want to keep them healthier throughout the lifespan, right? We want to we have somebody in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s operating more like their 30s, 40s, and 50s, right? I mean, I think every 80-year-old would, would kind of love to have that kind of both physical and mental uh, you know, ability of, of, of the, when they were in their 40s and so forth. And so that's what we're trying to do with regenerative medicine. And it is a, inherently a moving target because it, we're, we're early in the process. We are still figuring things out. But we've made some really uh, you know, big discoveries over the past 10, 15, 20 years and so forth that has really promoted it and made it actually a viable clinical service to deliver. And so we are delivering the early, early versions of what regenerative medicine is right now. And we are integrating the scientific pieces weekly, you know, monthly, weekly, as, as new pieces come off of the, you know, the, out of research, we, we integrate that into what we're currently doing and so forth. Awesome. And, and part of that, you were talking about nutritional aspects and even to your story about, you know, uh, with your grandparents and having the farm or a garden and, and eating healthy right from the start. I mean, how, how important is, is eating the right foods uh, for our health and, and just in improving our overall longevity? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, nutrition isn't new. Um, it's just not been necessarily um, well implemented into the conventional medical system. Um, so, you know, you have your, you know, the, I think the most common um, kind of nutritionist out there that people maybe be, maybe uh, may understand and know is someone called a registered dietitian. And these are the folks that will in hospital settings go in and calculate calories and calculate how much protein does someone who like a burn victim need and so forth. And they serve a really valuable purpose in, in these in these types of settings. But you don't see as much um, of that work kind of in an outpatient setting for people who are not hospitalized and so forth. And so. Uh, primary care offices are not really built per se um, for nutrition delivery and the services. Um, they, they tend to not be rigorously trained in nutrition. They get basics and so forth, but it's just not what the system is necessarily designed to handle. And so therefore we don't place the emphasis on those things when, when we deliver care through you know, primary care, pediatric and internal medicine offices and so forth. So that leaves a back gap and, and, you know, and what, what is generally filled by those gaps is kind of independent nutritionists, or you might see, see holistic services to deliver the, the nutrition services, but it is inherently a really valuable tool in terms of promoting longevity and healthy aging. It's not the only piece. And sometimes we do see scenarios where I think there's over-focus on it. You know, that nutrition isn't the, um, uh, the answer to every problem, but it is certainly a common denominator in everything that we look at. And so if you skip it, you are missing a big and valuable piece kind of to um, promote healthy aging over time. No, that's, that's, that's great. I think uh, uh, most of our listeners are kind of aware there's not a one size fits all solution for people, especially when it comes to nutrition. And I know something you're familiar with is, is along the lines of 
genetic testing and micronutrient testing with people, and we love talking about genetics on this program. Can you uh, tell us what that testing involved and what that can actually teach you as a, uh, as a healthcare provider for, for an individual when they get those types of tests? Yeah, so, you know, genetic testing is not one thing. I, th I think a lot of people think, okay, I'm going to get a genetic test and it's going to tell me what my genes are and then therefore, you know, it's going to help me you know, do things or, or tell me if I'm at risk for things. So one form of gene testing, it will tell you how, you know, risks of disease processes, right? And so it can be really informative. And like a good example of that is a gene called the ApoE gene, right? And depending on which form of the ApoE gene that you have, it will tell you if you are at a considerably higher risk for uh, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, right? And so that's a really important piece of information to know because you can implement strategies and, and really try to do as much as possible with your lifestyle, with your supplementation, with disease management and so forth to really try to prevent um, uh, dementia and Alzheimer's to the best of our ability. Whereas if you didn't know you were at the high risk of a disease, then you may not spend all that effort and energy into doing that. So I think it'd be really valuable and informative. And I, in my opinion, I don't think it's tested enough. So that's one form of genetic testing. Another form of genetic testing is called pharmacogenetics. And basically what that is doing is answering a question, how, do, how can we very effectively use a, a pharmacologic agent, a drug basically, um, without, um, you know, to choose the right one for the genes, right? Um, it helps you prevent side effects from, from uh, uh, medications. It helps you dose correctly. And it's really important because the difference between something being a poison and something to be very effective for health promoting properties is literally sometimes just the amount of it in the body. Um, and so those are two types of genetics. And then there's a, kind of a third type of genetics that will interplay with um, lifestyle factors. So how, what forms of nutrition are ideal for me to eat based on some of my genes? Am I more likely to gain weight or, or less likely to gain weight? Uh, and so forth. And so the research in nutrigenomics is still very early and young, much like regenerative medicine as a whole. And we're still kind of learning and adapting. How do we, how do we reliably kind of integrate it into, um, you know, our, our nutrition programs and, and our health programs, but it, it certainly can be useful. And then another really interesting thing that is kind of just becoming commercially available is the uh, epigenetic clocks. And this has been um, basically pioneered by a gentleman by the name of Steve Horvath. There's many others, but he's kind of like the father of epigenetic clocks, um, who has created a biological clock that we can use. And basically what this is doing is this is taking the footprint of somebody who is young and saying, okay, what, what, is the, what do the genes produce um, when you are young? And how does that compare to what the genes produce when you are old? And they are distinctly different. And so now we have a biomarker that we can use to try to take these old footprints and make them more youthful again. Um, and so we were starting to just implement that in clinical practice. It's just became commercially available say, over the last you know, couple of years or so. Um, but that plays well. Uh, epigenetics plays well with nutrition and supplementation. Um, the one part I haven't touched on is micronutrients. And so most people probably have had like an iron level or a vitamin D level run through their primary care doctor or pediatrician. Those are the common things, but we can do comprehensive nutrient analysis that lo looks both within the bloodstream and within the actual blood cells, which tells us two pieces of different information. One, what is our, what is our nutritional status over the last few days to maybe a week versus what is our nutritional status over say several months? Um, the intracellular tells you kind of long-term nutrition status, the, the nutrients that we find floating around the bloodstream kind of tells you how you've been eating in the short term. Do we have appropriate amount of nutrients? And that can be really helpful for, for 
treating disease. It can identify disease sometimes. It can tell you to some degree um, the function of your gut. Is it, is it working appropriately? Is, is there any sort of mal malabsorption syndrome? Um, but we can use this also just for kind of general health longevity, just to do we detect any, any abnormalities or any sort of deficiencies? And can we balance these and bring these back up to normal? And so that is a common technique you will see in holistic practices and integrative practices. Wow, that, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I, I want to touch back on the, the epigenetic talk you were talking about, but that was kind of an emerging technology. And is the idea that, okay, younger people, we produce these in our cells, or people, we're not producing as much. And so if the theory is if we can produce that again, that we can see the regenerative properties that we did in our youth, um, if, we can, if we can reproduce those in, inside of our cells. Is that, is that the idea? Yeah, basically. I mean, you know, we haven't really had anything. You know, if I, if I could give somebody a pill, you know, that has shown to, say, reverse the age of a mouse, right, or, or, or an animal model, um, and, and you take it, um, you don't see somebody like, you know, kind of go through a, a age reversal process in front of your eyes. You don't see someone go from old to young in front of you. And so how do you know if it's working, right? The only way to know that is to do a long-term study and, and give it to someone consistently over years and years and years and years as they age and see if they age longer and more gracefully. Those are really expensive studies and they're really long studies. So they don't get done, you know? And so we have to rely on these animal models to produce it. So the epigenetic clock actually gives us an opportunity to in real time implement something and then see how do our genes respond to that? And does it make it us look more youthful or does it make us look older? And that's a really exciting development. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're also talking about like the, the genetic testing to help determining proper dosage of things like medications and things like that. And, and that's, as far as my knowledge, that's not typical, uh, typically done in the physician's office. They're not testing for genetics to figure out the dosage. They're just going based on the manufacturer's recommendations or, maybe based on their experience, um, right. but this is, this is added information that would be very useful for them, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, a, it's an example of precision medicine, and it's something that we can do now. Um, and interestingly, we get insurance coverage for it. So it's, you know, as of right at this moment, we can actually get insurance in, in a lot of scenarios to actually pay for, for the testing. Uh, not, not every patient, of course, but, uh, and, and yeah, that's subject to change because insurance can be a little sticky. Um, but uh, it, we are getting routinely getting insurance coverage for it. And so that's really helpful because it really allows for advanced technology to fall into the hands of people of all socioeconomic statuses, which is really important. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so let's, let's talk about aging because nobody, nobody likes to age. Uh, I think the only people that want to get older are little kids, but once you're older, <laughs> you don't want to get older anymore. That's true. Um, <laughs> and it sneaks up on you. It's, it's a slow progression, but one day you wake up and you're missing some hair somewhere or uh, you, you have hair where you normally don't have hair or something. <laughs> Knees start creaking, uh, you know, and, and so people are looking for ways to slow that, that process down. And I've been reading a lot lately. Um, it's been on my Facebook feed and I'm just seeing these articles on this, this molecule called NAD. And, and what, it, what is that? Can you let, just give a, a, a synopsis to our, our listeners on what NAD, what it is, and why it's important and what that has to do with the onset of aging. Sure, yeah. Um, so any, interestingly about NAD is, you know, I remember like high school biology and seeing NAD as part of like the metabolic pathways and, and thinking to yourself, this is never going to be you know, relevant in any sort of way, even though I was interested in science. And lo and behold, you know, many, many, many years later, here I am using NAD in a clinical setting. And so, you know, sometimes these things come around, but anyone who has had high school biology has actually seen this because 
you learn about it when you learn about mitochondrial function. And so it plays an enormous role in energy production. Um, so it's called NAD and it stands for nicotinamide adenosine uh, dinucleotide, which is why we just say NAD because it's hard to say. It's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> it's a mouthful. It certainly is. Yes. But the, you know, it, it, if you think about how many cells we have in the body, billions of cells, how many mitochondria we have in the body, millions of mitochondria, and these mitochondria responsibility is basically to run the system. It runs the system while we sleep, makes the heart beat, makes the lungs function, you know, all the cells kind of stay healthy and kind of do their thing while we're sleeping. And then throughout the day when all you're active and you're doing things, you know, if you raise your arm, right? I had to just send a message through the, the nervous system to my muscles to fire, to move my arm. That takes energy, right? And so if you don't have uh, you know, enough NAD to make that happen, uh, you essentially don't have life, right? But what happens is much like hormone levels that drop over age, NAD levels drop over age, uh, as, as we age, excuse me. Um, and so when you hit middle age, you've essentially lost about 50% of your NAD production capacity, um, which again, I, I make the hormone analogy because everyone's, you know, under, understands what like kind of like what menopause is, what andropause is and so forth. And kind of, they know that as part of kind of the human experience, but they don't necessarily know the NAD kind of following a similar pattern as we age. And it, it can play out as distinct clinical syndrome. So it can interplay. Uh, it doesn't have a, a distinct disease per se associated with it, but it can make situations worse. Um, and so we're using it in the clinical setting. Uh, it's been probably used in rehab. Um, so polysubstance abuse and people who are trying to recover from substance abuse um, for probably the last 30 years um, in, in various settings and so forth. Uh, and it seems to make a really big impact because um, polysubstance abuse actually will decrease uh, NAD levels. So you could be 21 years old and, and, and be, have a normal amount of production, but because of maybe excessive alcohol use, it lowers the, the amount. And then when you, when you go through a detox process, you feel terrible. And so when we add the NAD levels back in, it actually makes uh, people feel a lot better and kind of, kind of help promote the, uh, the healing process and the, and the detox and hopefully staying off of the, uh, the substance and so forth. So um, that's one example. It's probably the most common example that we see, but we, I use it across the board for um, uh, mitochondrial uh, conditions. We use it for um, uh, in situations where there might be heart failure, though you do have to be careful in that scenario. Uh, and it is not a, you know, it's not an FDA approved treatment for as a, you know, treatment or prevention. I have to put that disclaimer out there, you know, um, although the FTC will be uh, listening. So um, it, it doesn't hit that, you know, it is not approved as a drug. It is, it is approved as a supplement. Um, although I will say the IV form does require a prescription. The intranasal form does re require a prescription. And then there's a few uh, oral versions that you can take, which are precursors to NAD. Uh, one is nicotinamide riboside, um, which has a lot of research in it, uh, on it, excuse me. And then the other one is NMN, uh, which also is a precursor and has a lot of research on it as well. But it's a very exciting um, molecule. Uh, we think it, it, it does play a role in a pathway called the sirtuin pathway, which tends to promote longevity. And so we know that if sirtuins promote longevity and NAD levels drop over time, we need to put NAD levels back in to help the sirtuin pathway continue to, to promote longevity and, and healthiness as we age. No, it, it's very interesting and it's very exciting uh, at the same time. Uh, this is all emerging technology and, and you're actually uh, putting it to use, uh, which is awesome. And some of the other technologies that I've heard recently and, and is growing in a lot of research uh, have to do with the, uh, the natural pathways of something like NRF2 or NRF1. Um, can you explain to our listeners just in general, what, what are those pathways and, and can we activate them? Do we need drugs to activate these pathways or can we do it with nutrition? 
Yeah, so, so NERF2 isn't necessarily my, my uh, area of expertise, but in, just in general, um, it, is, it is a health-promoting pathway, and it, it seems to, I think, have emerged from um, some of the early studies on calorie restriction, intermittent fasting, and those types of things, which is actually very, a very familiar phenomenon. We, a lot of the things that we know right now have originally come from uh, our, our early research on calorie restriction and things like fasting and so forth, because um, we've identified these pathways that seem to create this health promotion. And so when you're talking about NERF2, it seems to play a role in our ability to quench oxidative damage and, and free radical damage and so forth. And so one of the one of the kind of pillars of aging is we have this assault that occurs on our system. And, um, and it's essentially an oxidative assault, right? Um, one of the, one of those pieces actually comes from external stuff. So um, things that you breathe in, you know, you know, things that are that are not healthy for you that you breathe in through your your lungs, things that you may eat uh, and so forth, things that you may drink, um, can have oxidative free radical damaging effects on the body. But and we actually spend a lot of a lot of holistic clinicians spend a lot of time on that segment. And I think it's in my at least my opinion, I think we're concentrating a lot of energy on a very small piece because most of the internal destruction that occurs is from, it's, it's, our, it's our own byproduct. It's happening because we, we are essentially internally an engine, right? And every engine has exhaust or, or sort of some sort of byproduct. And these byproducts are, um, uh, will actually degrade the system over time. And fortunately, we have some built-in systems to kind of blunt that to some respect. Um, but we are actively looking for things that might also help blunt that that um, that's that internal uh, um, you know oxidative damage and the nerf two pathway has been one of the pathways that's been identified that we might be able to kind of promote through combination of nutrition um, certain nutrient uh, nutrient agents and uh, supplementation that might kind of pepper that pathway so to speak or increase it and then help us blunt some of those uh, some of those oxidative effects. Awesome, uh, it's all good stuff, and I, I want to switch gears on you a little bit because I want to talk yeah. about something. Uh, a little more topical um, because you know we're, we're in the midst of a pandemic, and every every time I turn on the news, um, we're reminded by the CDC their guidelines. You know, socially distant, uh, wearing a mask, all these things, which I kind of categorize as hiding from the virus. Um, but not many people are talking about actually what we can do to uh, support our our internal functions to to really prepare in case we come in contact with this virus. Uh, what are some things that you would recommend as far as boosting someone's immune system and, and just support, just have it as healthy as possible, just in case we come in contact with any type of, of foreign body that wants to invade us and wreak havoc inside? Yeah, yeah, it has been quite the year. It really has. Uh -huh. um, extraordinary. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word to describe it, but out of the ordinary, I suppose. Um, so yeah, and I, I totally agree. I mean, we have largely focused on the social distancing, the mask wearing and so forth, which I, I think that's a very appropriate. It's a really important piece. Um, we, we don't like to think about it, but we tend to spit when we speak and eat and all these other kind of things. We don't necessarily see it but there's a lot of stuff that comes out of us and we can, you know, capture a lot of that just by giving us a little bit of some space and by just wearing a mask and so forth. So that makes a good pragmatic sense. Now, the, the part that you were talking about that I agree with you that has not really been, been discussed and, um, uh, you know, is the how do we take this system, you know, this the big, you know, internal army or immune system and how do we make it more robust and healthier, right? And so we know that the natural aging process makes it um, less healthy as we age, right? We, we've known that for years and years and years and years that 
um, elderly patients are more susceptible to pneumonia. They're more susceptible to the flu, right? Um, matter of fact, they kill quite a few elders uh, annually. Um, we also know that the immune system um, doesn't create antibodies in the elderly populations like they used to. And that's why when we administer a flu vaccine in an elderly patient, we give them what we call a double vaccine, a, a larger um, uh, vaccine to try to get a more robust immune response because the regular vaccine that you give to a 30-year-old or an eight-year-old, they don't have that response. They need this bigger um, uh, flag in order to create the uh, antibodies, so to speak. So anyway, um, the, what we can do with nutrition is nutrition does play a role in the immune system because in order to build an army, you need all the equipment, right? So the, the analogy is you need precursors. You need to have the appropriate amount of protein. You have to have an appropriate amount of um, protein is probably the big one, but other specific kind of micronutrients. So for example, like vitamin D, right? Vitamin D plays a big role in the immune system. And again, that's not new information, but we're now learning about how that interfaces with COVID-19. And there was a study that was produced. Uh, it came from observations from the ICU unit with folks who have COVID-19. And what they did is they looked at uh, vitamin D levels uh, in these folks, and they looked at health outcomes. Well, lo and behold, the patients who had the lowest vitamin D levels had worse health outcomes. So more death, longer hospital stays, you know, uh, more intensive um, uh, care was needed to try to save them um, than as compared to people who had higher levels of vitamin D. So certainly it does, although we can't claim it's a treatment or, or preventive tool, it certainly does make sense that we would pay attention to that to try to protect people. No, that's, that's yeah, and, and that's, uh, that's very useful information for, for a bunch of people because, uh, again, we're just bombarded with um, all these good measures. Like you said, they're, they're good. They're important as far as socially distancing, uh, wearing the mask. And, and I, I love your down. You know, we, we don't like to talk about it, but we spit, we talk, and it's right. We don't see that mist in the air. Um, yep. So those are all good measures. But there's a lot of things that we can do, and nutrition plays an important role in that, as you mentioned, uh, and just preparing just in case we, we come in contact with anything. So we're as healthy as possible, and our immune system is is up to uh, taking on the task. So very, very important stuff. I wish we had more time. I could spend probably another hour deep diving talking about some of these different subjects you, you brought up, um, just a lot of information. Uh, but uh, my last question for you is, is how can our listeners get in touch with you or get in touch with Aspire if they, if they uh, uh, want to know more? Yeah, sure. So we're located in San Diego. We're right outside of La Jolla in the UTC area. Um, and so, you know, we have, I believe we will have, uh, you have my, the email address, uh, if you wanted to contact us, the, the website and so forth that you could provide to listeners and so forth. But yeah, we see patients that are local. We have patients that will fly in from other states and uh, spend a week with us and, and do intensive treatments and so forth. Um, and so we have lots of different ways to engage. And of course, now with telemedicine, you know, a lot of medical care can be delivered uh, you know, over, over, over the phone, right? Because we can, we can take uh, cases over the phone, we can do lab work over the phone, not, not the actual physical lab work, but we can order labs and so forth over the phone. And so we can do a lot of the normal things that we do in office over the phone to help people who are, may not be uh, in, in the local San Diego environment. Um, uh, but people love coming to San, San Diego, so, so they're always happy to come down and visit and so forth. It's, it's, not, it's not hard to get folks to come down here. Uh, that's right. There's the worst places you can go to, for sure. <laughs> so, exactly. That's awesome. So thank you very much, Dr. McNally. Our guest has been Dr. Ryan McNally, who's the medical director of the Spire Regenerative. And so from all of us at Nutrition Ignatian, I hope you enjoyed our discussion today. And we hope you join us next time when we discuss other topics related to your good health. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again, Dr. McNally. Thank you. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. 
To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>